What is an idiot? I don't mean that in jest, I'm really asking. What does it mean? Does it mean stupid or dumb? Is it a pejorative for somebody with whom we disagree? Is it synonymous with blindness or stubbornness? The word idiot comes from a Greek term, idios, that literally means the private man. It refers to the person who has no regard for uh, anything or anyone beyond himself. He is the center of his own universe, and he therefore tends to overemphasize the magnitude of his value and any personal offense that he experiences. A blow to his own ego is a cataclysmic event. But this kind of self-centeredness isn't confined to personal offense or hurt feelings like the schoolboy who uh, takes his ball and goes home. It imposes itself on others because the individual is the center of reality and it therefore expects for everything in its orbit to be in sync with it. The moon doesn't tell the earth what to do, the earth tells the moon what to do. Neither does the earth tell the sun where to go, but the sun says the earth. So in an egocentric microverse, the self becomes the highest authority. The spirit of hyper-individualism has taken Western society by storm. It is this spirit which sits at the center of such varied spheres as divorce, Christian pietism, identity politics, the transgender movement, existentialism, online church, number of other things. In other words, its effects are far-reaching and broad-sweeping, and they cannot be simply summarized. The question I want to begin the show with is, in what ways have or in what ways has hyper-individualism shaped your home, your habits, your Christian faith, and your very existence? How does Christ inform these areas? And how can the church be salt in such a world? Welcome once again to Who Let the Dogma Out, where doctrine has dominion over all of life. I'm Daniel Mayfield, joined by Titus Anderson and Jack Wilkie. Welcome back to the show, brothers. Hey, good, good to be good back. To see everybody. When you said, what is an idiot? I was worried that that was a Jeopardy-style answer, and you were about to tell us, you know. <laughs> what, uh, what? What is Titus Anderson? <laughs> <laughs> no, I was what gonna, is I, Titus Anderson would have been the question. No, no. I think the, the Jeopardy category or the thing on Jeopardy is a person who has a really bad take about Chick-fil-A. And then the answer is, <laughs> what is... No, what okay. is an idiot? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you guys would disagree there. That in and out. Yeah. Oh, you could be the answer for a lot of things on there, it, but... <laughs> is it, did I see the other day that Ryan Seacrest is going to be the new the new host? Of Not, Wheel of Fortune. Wheel of Fortune. Oh, Jeopardy's Wheel already Fortune. had the, the replacement yeah. people, yeah. Okay. Yeah, Jeopardy has two current. I'm a Jeopardy guy. Jeopardy currently has two hosts, uh, and one of them is really good, and the other one is not very good. Uh, and I'll just leave it at that. Uh, oh, hold on, hold on. The, Who's the good one? Who's the bad one? Because I've been out of the loop. Well, uh, the two hosts are Ken Jennings, uh, former Jeopardy champion, champion and then right. the the uh, other one is Mayim Bialik, uh, former uh, star of the uh i'm sure big emmy bang award winning big bang theory yeah and so uh, one of them is really good and one of them is not very good and i'll i'll let you guys watch jeopardy and try to figure out which one is which i think i can guess i think i can guess all right <laughs> um so maybe maybe one of them is the idiot but let let's get into this individualism thing and uh that that daniel set up for us give us a little bit more background on this and and how it's gotten to this and, and kind of, yeah, just give us background. Yeah. Um, you know, we're, we're kind of using the term in this episode, hyper individualism. It's an overemphasizing of the individual um, in, uh, in Carl Truman's book, uh, the rise and triumph of the modern self, which has, which informed a lot of the content for this episode, as well as what I'm about to say. Um, he speaks of the expressive individual and, you know, sometimes um, you know, the modern conservative um, position is to just lambast the expressive individual as the reason for all the issues that we're facing for identity politics and kind of the breakdown of society and everything else. One of the things that Truman points out in, in uh, his book is that we are all affected by this. I mean, it's in the air that we breathe. Uh, you know, Paul says that um, Satan is the prince of the power of the air. 
And his, you know, his influence then by, by virtue of it being in the air is something you just kind of breathe in. If, if you live in society and in the culture, there are ways in which this becomes a part of you, um, whether, whether good or bad. And, and we're going to break that down in this show, but uh, it's not really helpful to just speak of, you know, individualism as, as being, um, solely a bad thing. We also need to understand kind of where it came from. And so I, I just want to read a brief um, excerpt from Truman's book where um, he says far more eloquently and uh, uh, far more um, uh, in in a small window, uh, what I would, how I'd be able to describe it. But he, he says with the area uh, excuse me, with the era of Rousseau and romanticism, a new understanding of human selfhood emerged, one focused on the inner life of the individual. We, we just kind of take this for granted. Uh, this thinking finds its significant critical corollary in a view of society and culture as oppressive. In uh, Percy Shelley and William Blake in particular, this aspect of culture is identified above all with society's Christian sexual codes and particularly with the normative status of lifelong monogamous, monogamous uh, marriage. This suspicion about society and culture receives added power and philosophical depth in the work of Nietzsche and Marx, who in different ways argue that the history of society is a history of power and oppression, and that even notions such as human nature are constructs designed to reinforce and perpetuate this subjugation. Indeed, along with Darwin, they deal lethal blows philosophically and scientifically to the ideas that nature has an intrinsic meaning and that human beings have special significance or an essence that determines how they should behave. In the hands of Nietzsche, Marx, and Darwin, the world loses its innate teleology, and these three effectively strip away the metaphysical foundations for both human identity and for morality, leaving the latter, as Nietzsche is happy to point out, a matter of mere taste and manipulative power games. So one of the things that uh, Truman is getting at is that uh, this um, hyper-individualistic, expressive individualism that we're observing now, that, and we're seeing all the ways that it it's breaking down society, kind of the peak of this is the transgender movement where a person could be biologically male and yet think himself to be a woman on the inside because that's how he feels. And so he just, you know, this is existence precedes essence. This is existentialism. And here's how it's working out. The thing Truman is saying is this goes way back because, you know, we we were some we were blindsided by it, right? It was under the surface or 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 so we thought, but all of the writing was on the wall, all of the foundations for for where we are today, it goes all the way back to Rousseau and this new concept of the self that's rooted in you know sympathy and and empathy and Percy Shelley you know one of the things that uh was argued uh there is that um the sexual mores and you know even even just marriage as you know a, a one man one one woman for life that this is kind of an oppressive thing and that this is Christians and the church um looking down on uh you know the individual and and depressing them. And so picking up with that, Nietzsche and Marx and, and Darwin, they all kind of dealt in this class struggle. It's it's oppression and it's, you know, power. And um and this is kind of what's led to where we are today. Um there are these age-old institutions, whether they be the church or some uh, you know, some philosophy that has apparently oppressed us. And the thing that needs to be liberated is the self. So the self is the highest authority the self is the center of the world. This is where meaning, morality, everything's found. And it's so funny when you fail to understand like that that structure, that history of how we got here. And people do this with all kinds of things of, okay, I don't like this. I don't like the transgenderism thing and how individualistic it is. And so let's climb five feet back up the slippery slope. It's like, right. well, that's still slippery. slippery. You're going to end right back here. Because right. all of the foundation is in place. And like, right. we're talking about hundreds of years of build up to this. And we want to throw out the really icky, ugly part and be like, yeah, well, that's no good. But I want the rest of it. I want my individualism. But we don't, we certainly don't want the bottom of the slippery slope. Like, it's part right. and parcel. It, it's, you cannot separate the two. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's exactly. Oh, go ahead, Daniel. <laughs> no, well, I'm just, you know, to Jack's point, we, the other day I saw this, um, 
this it, it was a decent rant, but it was this grandfather who was talking uh, to a school board about what they had, you know, bringing in some of these books that were on, that were about tr- transgenderism and, and just sexuality, sexualizing our children. And the thing he said was, you know, he was rebuking the school board saying, please get these books out of our library to give our kids a chance. It's like, do, is that really, you know, this is just a symptom of this major underlying issue. Taking taking the books back out of the library doesn't fix the problem. The problem that led to the books being in the library in the first place still remains. And the whole the whole thing is grounded on this. I think I think one thing to remember about this is we talk about the potential again, as Daniel has said, and Jack as well, that uh, we we live and breathe this mentality. It, you know, it, it may be an overstatement to say the West is built on this mentality, but the the people again, as we talk about the Rousseaus, I, I was even thinking about Descartes. You know, his uh, what cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore, I am. Mm-hmm. Basically, this mentality, and it, and it almost has this root in Gnosticism of. What happens up here is what's most important. You know, no matter what happens physically, no matter what kind of evils I may commit with this skin suit, you know, what happens up here is the most important. And so when Rousseau wrote his autobiography that was, again, supposed to be the most raw, real picture of who he was, you called confessions. The reasoning was that he was confessing, you know, the most depraved thoughts of his inner inner mind. And that was, again, where where life really happens. History really happens in the head. Well, again, this, as we talk about Jack Slippery Slope, this is something that I hear even Christians teach, you know, when it comes back to the Gnosticism thing of what happens in your mind, what you think, the way you think, what kind of happens in this very insular self world, that's where Christianity really happens almost. It's kind of between my head and God's ear and everything surrounding it uh, is of no account or very little account. And so, again, don't sit here and think, well, I'm a conservative Christian. So this is not my problem. It's all of our problem. You know, Truman, as you said, Truman in his book talks about the way we think about our occupations. You know, he said if if he had asked his grandfather, hey, grandpa or his great grandfather, do you find fulfillment in your career? Uh, He said his grandfather would have said, huh? Like, what are you talking right. about fulfillment? He says, oh, you know, well, you know, d- does your job make you happy? And he would have been like, I'm a sheet metal worker. You know, I, I mean, it puts food on the table. My kids have mm-hmm. shoes, you know, but even Truman talks about how if someone asked him about his career as a professor, uh, he would say, well, I love, you know, shaping young minds. I love, you know, holding people's hand as they kind of work their way academically. And so he even knows in himself, you know, the way that I think about my self-fulfillment is different right. as a professed Christian than my great grandfather or my grandfather, or, or you right. know, even closer than that. So definitely, what, something that affects us all. Well, and everything which, becomes which is, an identity piece. Every part of your life is is just part of this building out around yourself of this is who I am. This is who I want to present myself as to the world, and it, it just reaches this ridiculous proportion. And it, th- number one, that's an incredibly immature thing. You know, just the kind of thing of I've got to tell you who I am all the time. And and just it's kind of like those cars that you see that have like 50 bumper stickers laying out their entire their entire ideology to every person that's ever behind them in traffic. Like, why? Why do you feel the need to do that? What insecurity is in there? Well, it's an insecurity driven by godlessness, by I've got to establish myself, me as as man, as as the pinnacle of all of these things. And and because you don't have that, you're there's a desperation there, and it it's kind of pitiful, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you is. just you see this into adulthood. I'm gonna give one example before I pass it over here. When 2020 hit and everything went to Zoom and you know TV broadcasters, sportscasters, whatever, uh, you know started doing what we're doing right now, and and this would you'd turn on ESPN and there's a guy sitting in front of his bookshelf at home. And they'd start decking it out with all their favorite video games and movie posters and, you know, things like that of, I, it's not enough for me to get on and talk baseball or talk about the economy on on, C, on CNBC or whatever it is. No, I've got to bring my identity to this. I've got to have a little bobblehead over my shoulder. I say this, I think I've got a hockey puck up there, but... It's, it's very uh-oh, clear. Uh-oh, I did not cure. I did not uh-oh. curate this, uh, this, uh, this shelf behind me. This is a, a mess full of junk. But... It, it was just that thing of like everybody needs to know who I am. Like, just get on and do your job, man. Right. It, it, you don't, it's and beautiful. You, well, it's it's weird because you don't see that. Like, I've traveled a lot and been in. You know, you don't see that in in the mud hut. 
There's no expression of that individual there because they don't have they, any bobbleheads on the on the wall. There's no, no bobbleheads. They okay. see they they don't have this idea that this that the the whole of who they are is is just an expression of their inner you know like you know just little things that they like on the inside. They're a part of a of a community. They're a part of a broader people. They're connected to their forefathers. You you know they they know I'm I'm a part of this lineage. I'm a part of this tribe. I'm a part of this community. And so, it, you know, we're in the West. This particularly affects us in the West in the way that it's interestingly, it's not affecting others on a, in other areas. But, you know, we're we're talking about how this affects us. And uh, Titus brought out, you know, Truman's point is so great about, you know, if you asked his grandpa, uh, he, he'd have no idea what you're talking about. And, you know, that's why I'm thankful for, you know, and, and that's why when Mike Rowe comes on the scene, he seems totally novel. It's like, what? Who's who's this guy? Go just go get a job and do the best. What? I'm not going to be fulfilled in that. And Mike Rose, like, no, that's not what it's about. Go do go. you should find your fulfillment in just doing the best of whatever it is, whether you like it or not. Is are you putting food on the table? Are you providing for your family? Our identity should be rooted more in those things. But again, getting into the family, that's getting outside of self, right? That's breaking away from that. One of the ways that uh, I think is affecting us um, hugely. And and we'll look at some that I think we would all agree, hey, these are bad. But have you all heard, I know you have, when somebody says something along the lines of, you know, I'm I'm just don't know who I am anymore. All right. You know, I'm um I'm trying to uh to find myself. And and it's there's this uh, because our idea of the self is so rooted internally, just like in this movement inward, so so many have have absolutely no idea what that is. Because I think the deeper you get into yourself, the less substance there is, and actually the darker it becomes. Yeah, you're, absolutely, and and that goes back to again the thing of historically where you lived, where you went to church, what your occupation was. These were, again, not not choices. Again, you know, you have people today of like, well, you know, I'm going to get through college and I'm going to decide if I want to live on the East Coast or the West Coast, if I want to live here. If after I a go- two year backpacking trip through Europe. Yeah, after two year backpacking. And so what you have is this cultural buffet where people feel one again that they're in total self-control of their life where they end up. Historically, obviously, that was not so. And so, again, these markers become, again, not a not a mark of self-expression, but a mark of this is who I am. I'm defined by who my family is. I'm defined by where I live, the culture of where I live. And so, again, you can imagine, as you're saying, as, as today we cloister deeper and deeper into self. And for instance, you have a young man who doesn't, who rarely touches the air outside of his basement or his video games or whatever. He has no connection to kind of the lifeblood of who he is, at least as it would have been defined historically, because he's cloistered so inside of himself. Uh, Again, he's kind of just totally uh, agnostic to any kind of connection to that. And that leads to to, um, weak families. It leads to weak communities. It leads to weak society. And it's just amazing how it kind of cascades out from there. Right. It's it's this atomization of everybody is, is one individual unit. And it's that united we stand, divided we fall thing. And people are just easier to pick off and, and, and you're not happy that way. And you're not, it's the difference because part of this finding self thing so many times is I got to find myself away from my family. You see this drives divorce so many times. I've got to find out who I am for me, you know, separate from my husband. No, who you are, part of it is being a spouse to this person. That is part of it is being a son or a daughter to your parents and a sibling to your, to being a member of your church of like you're, you are the, the sum of all of these things that you're not a disconnected unit that has to go figure itself out and then come back into the connection with everybody else. You do that on the way. I wanted to read lyrics from a song, which I don't typically do, but this one has always struck me so well. The rest of the song's okay, but it starts off really well uh, by this hipster band back from 2011, Fleet Foxes, where they said, I was raised a believing I was somehow unique, like a snowflake distinct among snowflakes, unique in each way you can see, and now after some thinking, I'd say I'd rather be a functioning cog in some great machinery serving something beyond me. And that mm. was before Snowflake became this big pejorative, right, of, oh, you're so special. Right. 
how brilliant is that that just little verse of man they told me i could be whatever i could be i was my own thing i was just this this burn, bright burning star this snowflake and you know what i'd rather just be part of something bigger i'd rather there's, be part of a family a community a nation a church or whatever what that's really the the dichotomy we're talking about here right there's no there because i think you know i'll say this in my early 20s and and i hope this resonates in my early 20s i experienced some serious anxiety and um on the verge of depression i mean i i really this was a hard struggle for a few years there and the root of it i it, and it took a long time of you know, analysis and looking back on it and even kind of some of the advice working out of it, but it was, um, being self-centered. It was, it was looking within, it was, um, just, and, and the thing that really broke me free of it is getting out of it is breaking is, is looking out into the broader world and realizing, Oh, I'm not the center. <laughs> there's other stuff, there's other people. And, and we're going to get to this later about what Jesus said about discipleship and finding our, you know, our true life. But as you're talking about that lyric, one thing that came to, uh, uh, I, I wrote down this quote from uh, Doug Wilson that I heard the other day. He said, it, it would be better to be a molecule on the paving stones in heaven than to fill up the entire outer darkness with our triumphant howling. And he's he's exactly on the money. There is no fulfillment in just being the full expression of whoever you want to be disconnected from what you were made to be. So I, as you know, we're going to talk about some more symptoms here, but one thing I want to lay out that I think is a helpful framework um, from which to think of this is um, are we creators or are we creatures fundamentally, which, which one of these things are we? And the Christian recognizes and knows no, existence doesn't precede essence. We're not existentialists. My Who I am was ordained and was foreordained and was given by the logos. God established law. God established structure. God made me, and that's who I am. I belong to this much bigger thing. And in Truman's book, um, he he talks about – there's a Canadian philosopher um, – uh, Charles Taylor, who says that the, the dichotomy is between um, a mem mimetic worldview and a poetic worldview, mimesis or uh, poiesis. And I think this is a helpful way of looking at um, or, or how we should conceive of this. Within a mimetic worldview, we recognize that there is um, – some structure and some um, moral framework and something that I kind of belong to and I'm and I'm supposed to go out and discover what that is and align myself with it. Within the poetic worldview, um, everything in the universe is plastic. Um, it, it's kind of just whatever I want it to be and I create um, purpose. I create, what I'm going to be and what I'm going to do. And I create morality and, and it all comes from within. It yeah. comes down to these two things. And um, do you guys have anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I was going to say, it's a really interesting thought experiment. And it's one that I think maybe people haven't thought through. It's, it's the similar idea. And most of this, this conversation comes even from an evolutionary worldview. So you kind of have to factor that in. But let's imagine you get to some form of humanity and uh, a human kind of sits here and and then all of a sudden a dog walks into the scene. They've never seen this creature before and they look at it and they say, dog, that's a dog. Well, what, what we kind of believe is that our perception of that thing, our naming of it is really granting it its essence, right? Well, now we've made that a dog and it's only a dog insofar as we experience and go through this stuff. And what you're talking about, these two worldviews, is this idea that, hey, what we define thing at, things as, what we have to say about a tree, what we have to say about the world, that's what gives it its meaning. You know, we are creating the meaning. And it goes back to this idea that I think is so powerful in the Bible that even on some level, language precedes matter. You know, God said let there be light. Now, again, we don't have to go into, nor can we understand all the metaphysical ramifications of God speaking and how that works, but at least in the biblical worldview framework, you know, language precedes 
the existence of the thing. God spoke it before the thing existed. And so as you're saying, what we see around us, you talked about God's ordination. God has defined the nature of existence. It, it's there. And that's why as in the churches, we can say that we talk about the value of uh, of a fetus, as the world would call it. That, that human being has an ingrained value, not because of our experience of them, not because of uh, their capabilities or what they bring to the table, but rather they have an essence that is instilled before any of those things, any of their contributions to society come into effect. And that proves, again, at least from a biblical worldview that what things are is decided long before they ever touch or affect anyone well and you see that play out with the i mean the fetus thing is a perfect illustration of like we who acknowledge reality acknowledge that that this is its own existence right but you see this where if a celebrity says you know i'm pregnant i want to have this baby they're pregnant you know it's a baby in there they want to go kill it it's not a baby anymore like it's it's all on the individual's experience and what what we're all getting at here is this leads to so much unhappiness because you're raging against the creator saying no you're wrong you got this whole thing wrong. Your system doesn't work. Our system is right. And that leads to what Daniel said was the the depression and anxiety. It's no coincidence that individualism is rampant in the culture and bad mental health is rampant in the culture. But the worst part is we double down on it with a therapeutic approach that says, mm-hmm. let's navel gaze the whole time. Let's look at right. yourself. Let's let's untangle yourself. Mm-hmm. Let's let's work on your you know, let's 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 talk about you and, and just have you talk and, and open yourself up, self, 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 rather than let's connect you to something bigger than yourself, as as we talked about, as Fleet Fox's uh, song demonstrates so so beautifully of like that's where you're going to get fulfillment is is yeah. contributing to something is that grandfather working and putting food on the table for his family that's fulfilling that's enough but when we've got this thing of okay i put food on the table for my family how did i feel about it how yeah. did i you know when i came home at the end of the day did i did i enjoy the day cuz it wasn't enough to put the food on the table and uh, again why are we asking these questions well because right. we're we're stuck in this and as i said the therapy doubles down on it it compounds on it and i have i know people who are stuck in this vicious cycle of uh, depression anxiety all right well go talk about yourself a lot longer and (laughs) and think about yourself and and self 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 oh wow I'm, i'm not getting better why would you yeah they're feeding the same poison that poisoned them to begin with i was listening to jordan peterson the other day and he i think he was talking within the context of transgenderism but he said he said look the role of the the role of therapy has always has not been for someone to come in and to be validated. Typically, they come in because there's a problem and because their thinking is wrong and because there's some sense in which they need to change it and be reformed. And at, at our the supposition today is that everything within me is good. The, the only problems that are that exist are outside of me. And so this is where this is, again, this goes back to, to Nietzsche and Marx and all of these guys with power and oppression. And they're saying, look, the real problem is that there are these forces outside of you that are making you unhappy or that are making you not be your authentic self. And so what ultimately ends up happening is we tr- we we end up reshaping society for uh to to authenticate who I am rather than saying I'm a part of society. And, you know, I, I, there's a sense in which I need to become a part of it. We have society reordered for us. We, I mean, we were talking recently about safe spaces and college campuses that are supposed to be this place that just authenticates you and validates you and makes you feel good. But that's not, that's not how it works. And particularly within um, the therapy world where this is exacerbated, because here's, here's how I see it. The, because of these ideas that are in the air that we breathe, it's it's killing us, right? So people are are realizing I'm depressed, I'm broken. And so they're going to experts. Well, we've already said as a society, the experts aren't the church leaders. Um, the source of truth isn't the Bible. So we've actually just from the start written off like the actual place where we're going to find answers. And then we go to these secular people who've been um, informed by these other thinkers. And one of the things that um, 
uh, Truman says is he says, traditionally, uh, the role of a therapist in any given culture was to enable the patient to grasp the nature of the community to which he belonged. Then he says, therapy now ceases to serve the purpose of socializing an individual, and instead it seeks to protect the individual from the kind of harmful neurosis that society itself creates through its smothering of the individual's ability simply to be herself. Um, I'm just going to drop that there. I don't know where you pick up from that, but it's, it, yeah, it's just amazing as we, as we think about this, the, 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 the lie of all of this is that and it's what we've all been told, especially us nineties, Disney kids, you can be whatever you want to be. The power to change the world is right there within yourself. And basically what it comes to is like, we're saying everything in me is good, but also the self me has the capability to fix all of my own problems, uh, to, to, to put myself in a position where I want to be. And it's just a fundamental misunderstanding of again, who we are in relation to God, uh, who we are in relation to the world uh, and thinking that any success that we have, you know, again, look at the most successful people in the world, believing well, that's, totally self-propelled that that person you know we talk about self-made millionaires all these things no one lives and dies to self you know that that just doesn't really happen but we've created a society and a framework where where people believe that it does they believe that's and a lot of times again authenticity to self is the true marker of of who can be successful well they got what where they are by being totally authentic to who they are on the inside again we can see time and time again girl wash your face yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 We can, we can talk about that for a long time, but, it, but again, it, it just goes back to this thing to where um, if you believe that you are the answer to all your problems, you're going to be sorely disappointed. And that's where all this depression comes in because we're told the answers to everything are inside yourself. You look inside yourself and you go, I don't see any answers. You know, I must be sick. I must have, I must have problems because normal people apparently can fix all of their own problems. And that's, again, simply not the case. You see that in our stories too of, uh, to give a couple of examples, um, what's her name? Brie Larson, the the Captain Marvel. I don't know if you guys watch the superhero movies or whatever, but Captain Marvel was, you know, she's very powerful or whatever, but that movie, it's been a few years. I only saw it once because I certainly was never going to watch it again. We've got, I mean, long back, as far as man goes back, we have the hero's journey, right? Whereas you start out, you're not strong enough. Luke Skywalker gets his hand cut off. He's got to go get more training. He's got to grow. He's got to overcome his weaknesses to be something better. He's got to yeah. confront the, the his own shortcomings to, to overcome that, right? No, now in, in these movies, her only thing was that somebody had like surgically put an inhibitor chip to to inhibit her powers and they had stopped her from being what she was meant to be all along there was no hero's journey it was as soon as they figured that took it off she just destroyed everybody (laughs) where's the conflict in that same thing with the new star wars movies you know the the new jedi doesn't need any training doesn't need anything she just needs to believe in herself because it's already in there and you see it's ridiculous on a movie but it happens in real life of the problem is everything around you well here's the problem with that you can't control the world around you. You can only control yourself. You can only confront your own weaknesses and make yourself stronger to face the world around you. So what comes of that is learned helplessness. I can't do anything about it. I cannot rearrange the entire world. I can't fix myself. How on earth can I rearrange the entire world to cater to me? And so, yeah, yeah, that would be a crushing realization. It would lead to depression. It would lead to anxiety. It would lead to unhappiness. And and so this flows into so many other things because feminism is the same thing. It's telling yeah. women you can be the same as as a man in every single way, and you're supposed to be the same as a man. You don't have a a, a chart, you know, path for, a path charted for you by God. You just be exactly who you want to be. This this strong girl boss, don't need a man kind of thing, leads to misery. Right. You see, you don't need a family. You don't need a husband. You don't need kids. Or, you know, they say the same. You know, to men of well, just go do this. You know, don't settle down. Don't tie yourself down. Do what fulfills you. And again, as as we've been saying the whole time, it leads to so much misery. Right. Yeah. One of the more, I, you know, there's there's so many ways this works itself out. And we, and we were talking about the big scale societal wide ways. One of the ways that I think that really probably hits home closely, and you mentioned it a little bit earlier, Jack, is um, how this affects the family and how this affects the way that we live as husbands and as wives and uh, within this marital institution. And 
to me, it's striking because we've not yet changed the vows in our in our marriages. I've been to a lot of weddings. I've done. I've performed some weddings, and the um, the wedding still says, um, you know, in the vows still say in sickness and in health, in you know, rich or poor, for better or for worse, until when, until death do us part. And we still say that because that's the sacred term. Like if you had a wedding that was like. Only in good, only in health. Everybody would be like, this is crazy. This is nonsense. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we we promise something because we know inherently that's the upright thing. But the moment it's inconvenient for us, we say, well, look, we just fell out of love. Um, I just, I don't, I don't feel the same way that I felt about this person. And, you know, I just fight with my wife all the time. My wife, we, we just argue all the time. And so the thing that's going to be better for us and for our own mental health, our own, our, our own happiness is to part ways. Well, what you just did in the process was you destroyed all of those children that you created together. What would be a lot better is if the two of you grew up and realized it isn't about us anymore. It isn't just about me. I have a wife who I made a promise to. I have children who I've created. And 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 we've seen like all of the evidence is there. All of the social information is there about what happens to kids when mom and dad split up. Yeah. It's it's worse for them. It is more mentally damaging for them than in the instance of a parent dying. And and that that can be quantified to a degree. So it works itself out in these kinds of ways. And and we just accept this. Well, we just, I'm just not happy anymore. Well, it's the same learned helplessness thing. I fell into love. I fell out of love. What are you right. going to do? Right. Yeah. And in this society, again, a society that worships the self, vow, covenant, promise means nothing. Because your, your, greatest, your greatest responsibility is to yourself. That's right. who I have to be the most true to. And so, you know, and the hard thing about this, especially as fathers, and I've noted this in myself, we've been trained to be selfish. We live in a society that has trained us to be selfish. And so this works its way out, not just in, you know, borderline divorce marriages. You see it in healthy marriages where the parents drop off their kids at their grandparents' house and let them raise the kids so that they can go on their vacations, so that they can do their thing. Because again, the parents' happiness, their 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 you know thing going on there is more important than the children. And the yeah. same thing I would say to the father, and, and again, this is something that I've had to work on in my own self, but you have to be careful. There's a lot of guys out there I've talked to that kind of say, well, you know, I come home from work and I, I eat dinner with my, my kids. And then, then it's, three hour video game time for me where I go to my, my gamer chair and I sit and, and I just see it. And I go yep. at some point, the maturity has to kick in and go, what am I doing? You know, I'm, right. I'm, I'm being so self-centered. And again, if I examine my life, I see other things where I have to really look at myself and question, am I being selfish here? I've been trained to be selfish, not by my parents, not by the church, but by society as a whole. I mean, yeah. we're, we're entertainment addicted, uh, we're, we're self addicted. And so we, we all have to constantly be looking in the mirror and saying, hey, am I falling into this? Yeah, well, wait, we're talking about the marriage and parenting thing. Think about how much of uh, how many people are making that decision. Oh, I don't want kids. And it's so easy to justify of I wouldn't be happy if I had them. I wouldn't be a good parent. I wouldn't. I, it's just not something I'm interested in doing. Couples that are married and sit down and they that's this. It blows my mind that we have this question, but we do of, right. you know, a couple gets married and, and hopefully they have this discussion before they get married. But they say, do we want to have kids? What oh do you mean? Gosh. Do you want to have kids? <laughs> You're humans. When you have sex, it right. produces kids. Just because science right. has has made you not do that, and and made this. I mean, like it's it's very much. Uh, you could go down this this rabbit trail of like how perverse it is to mm-hmm. fruitless non you know like like sex that you were intentionally making fruitless, and and what that says societally and and God wise, Bible wise, all that. I mean, that's a whole episode unto itself. But it's this individualism thing of, in the picture of my life, as I kind of put together this Instagram mosaic of my life, do I want to be the kind of person who is featuring kids in that and and that's what's going to fulfill me? Or no, I want the the Instagram life where the things that kids are going to hold me back from, travel, career, whatever else. Okay, well, I want that Instagram life, so I'm not going to have them. Or I do want the Instagram mom life, and so I'm going to, you know, make the kids the the feature content of my my self. Everything, whether you have kids or you don't have kids, it's about self. It's insanity. 
Well, you get to the end of that life. That person who, who chose to just travel Europe, live a single kind of nomadic life, a real privileged life with a lot of creature comforts, a lot of exploration, travel, lust, wanderlust, all that kind of stuff. They're going to get to the end of their life and they're going to be sitting at a table empty on Thanksgiving. And there, there is all, see Satan, all he can do is promise pleasure and, and give only pain. He takes anything God designed, like exploration is a good thing. Travel is a good, like being able to do these things is a good thing, but only within a proper sphere and only so far. Yeah. And I, I heard the other day, Brian Sauvey, he he produces kind of some Christian music and he had a lyric that was, he wrote a love song to his wife. And there was a lyric that just stopped me in my tracks. He said, um, he said, uh, weren't we as, um, fruitful as a plum tree, better than trips to sandy shores. Give me the sound of all our children, these rough and tumble afternoons. And the line there, I don't know if if the listeners picked up on this. Weren't we as fruitful as a plum tree? That's better than trips to sandy shores. See, we, we plan our families around how can we have the most vacation, the best vacation, all this kind of stuff. And he's like, look, children, little image bearers of the living God, this is so much better. Getting outside of self, like that's that's therapy, getting away yeah. from self, being around children and and creating them and producing them and doing good for them and raising them up. This is good. And one of the things that, that this, this might be kind of a, a I don't want to say this is a third rail because it really shouldn't be. It's so absolutely central. But one of the ways, you know, like, you said children are produced from from sex. Well, what we've done within this hyper individualistic society is we've gotten away from the that kind of intimacy between a husband and wife that's creating a life and and everything that's involved in it. it's really ultimately going to be a very selfless act, the whole thing from start to finish. But what we've done is we've made sex totally about the individual no. and 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 you're seeing it it bear itself out in all these you know egregious ways that's just kind of never ending where the person in themselves uh, you know has some um, kind of uh, fantasy or whatever and sex becomes totally about them it becomes totally about um what drives them what they desire it's instantaneous they uh, you know it has nothing to do with another person. The other person is an object that, you know, um, and how is, how's that, how's that doing? I mean, what is that doing for society right now? It's, it's destroyed it. I mean, it's literally destroyed society. And, and as you said, the word uh, you know, object, and I was thinking about objectify, this all goes back to the person that has no desire for progeny they have no no thought for what does my what what does my legacy look like a hundred years from now uh what do i leave behind not not in a vain glory kind of way like i want to build you know the biggest barn and everybody's going to look at it after i'm god and say wow titus built the biggest barn in the county it's not that but what it ultimately right. becomes to is we objectify the world itself to the point where we say hey the second i die the whole thing can burn down I don't care. Right. It's right. all just here to make me happy. And right. so the thought that, again, we objectify everything, the mm -hmm. entirety of the world is is all to the to the the good and the entertainment of the main character, me, the main character of the universe. It's just such a subversion of, of right. what nature itself, you know, it goes back to Paul, does nature itself not teach you these things? Yeah. But we've put nature behind a, a 10 foot tall uh, iron wall and, and told people, don't look this way, look at yourself. Well, and there's nothing new under the sun, right? Like we're, I think we're saying there are things broadly, society-wide, philosophically, that some of these guys, some of our predecessors created that now we're living within this, this worldview. But as you're talking there about, you know, after I die, it can all just burn and and who who really cares? I was reading recently in the Kings in the parallel accounts of the Chronicles when Hezekiah had been kind of showboating about all of his riches and all the things that he'd been given. Um, God sent envoys from Babylon and they came and were spying out the land. You know, this is this is going to lead to their captivity. But Hezekiah was bragging about all of it, and he's showing them everything that he'd done, all that he built, all the all of his accolades. And 
uh, God, because of this, God came, God sent Isaiah to him and he said, look, he said, you are going to be, he said, your sons and daughters after you, after you die, your sons and your daughters are going to be um, slaves in a foreign land and your sons are going to be eunuchs to those kings. And uh, Hezekiah, get this is what he said. He said, um, I, he said, the, the word from the Lord is good. For he thought to himself, um, essentially, uh, what, what does this mean for me? Because it will happen after I'm already gone. And, and, and that's, that's a paraphrase, but go, go look at it. He, he literally said that. And yeah. that, that is the height of what we're talking about is, is I'm the individual. I'm all that matters. And I do think you see that work out in kind of the, the, the boomer conservative who his ideas ruined a lot of society. <laughs> he's the reason why the millennial is the way that he is. And he, and he's, you know, he'll complain about the millennial or whatever, but then he'll say, you know, I see society's going to hell in a handbasket. Um, I'm just glad that the collapse won't be until after I'm already gone. Have y'all heard that? Yep. I've heard that. And it's like, no, are you serious? Like, yeah. And again, the second you have a child of your own, like I look, I've got Silas, he's five and Matthew, he's three. I mean, they're one of the greatest joys of my life. And I look at them number one and go, okay, I got to man up. You know, I've got to, I've got to provide for these guys. But I also think about, about the decisions I'm making locally in my community and my society and go, if I can do whatever I can do within my Christian walk to keep these guys from, you know, dying in a slave camp somewhere someday, which is a terrible, like, it's not like you're jumping like to, to way ahead in the future in some kind of terrible circumstance, but you just go, I, I love these children so much. I'm going to, as unto the Lord, center my life on making sure that whatever I leave behind, they pick up and serve faithfully yeah. so that again, it, they can continue it on. And, and again, if I have to live uh, with a twig at my feet and they get to, to, to lounge underneath the tree, that's worth it. It's a worthy, be happier anyways. Yeah. It's a worthy life of sacrifice for me right. that they can live better. And again, right. so antithetical to the way that we've been trained to think as and a that recovering is libertarian myself. Yeah. It was the same thing of, of having kids where you realize there's two fundamental flaws that come out in libertarianism, but also in this hyper-individualism, is you think the individual is the basic unit of society. It's not. It's the family. It, it, it is the family. It is because individuals die. And, and we don't start fresh with every generation because if, if, if one generation totally died out and there was no, uh, you know, children to show for it, it'd be over, right? And so you need a that, that lineage. You need that, that intergenerational vision. And so it's not the basic unit is the individual. And if it's not the individual, there's another side that comes with that is so many people think society is built around rights. No, it's not. It's built around duties. And and when you're thinking individualistically, it is about rights. Right. Well, I have a right to this, I have a right to that. But when you think about it being part of a family, there are duties. As a kid, you have duties to your family. As a parent, as a husband, uh, right. you have duties. And we right. don't like duty. We don't like that idea of, of there is something expected of me, something required of me. And so we, we run, I mean, as fast as we can away from that to rights. Well, I have a right to do this. I have a right to not do what I don't want to do. I have a right to all this individual stuff because I have a right to not participate in anything that doesn't fulfill me. But if you right. have duty, you're not asking those questions. And so these are such fundamental issues that that frame everything around us. And again, it flows from God's word. And so with the time we have left, let's let, we've been talking about some of this a little bit. Yeah. What is the self biblically? And I'm going to put a question to you guys. This isn't on the outline, but this just came up in the Think Deeper episode, uh, the other podcast I'm on that I recorded right before this one. The idea of self-love. The Bible says, love your neighbor as yourself which yeah. recommends or, or expects self-love to be natural. But then it also, of course, 2 Timothy 3 says one of the first signs of, of things getting bad is people will be lovers of self. Yeah. And obviously the Bible is not contradictory. And so what is proper self-love and what is improper self-love biblically? It's only when it's, it's only when the, um, the precondition for the love of self is that it's completely contextualized and built within the frames of loving God first. It's the only yeah. way that you can really love yourself is, is knowing it isn't about me. It's about the living God. My greatest love for myself is going to actually be born out 
in the way that I love God and the way that I love neighbor. And and, and I'm ultimately way happier. I mean, this is one thing I've noticed about my my children is they their happiest moments is not on Christmas morning and on the birthday when they're opening up their their big pile of presents. Have you, I don't know if y'all have, have witnessed this or observed this. There is like excitableness and like it's a big like exciting moment. But a lot of times at the end of it, it's like, oh, what are all these toys? And they just kind of forget about them. Their happiest moments are in um, like they're they're doing their their chores. They're, they're doing the things that we they're going out and they're helping us serve somebody. We see so much more joy there. Why? And that is love of self. Like if you, if you, once you finally get it, you, you, whoever loses his life, he will find it. There is a, there is a a sense of loving self, but only when it's, when the precondition for it has been met, which is loving God. You're, you're exactly right. And I I go back to the, the self-love on either side is wanting what's best for yourself. The, the, to me, the prime difference is a believing that I know what's best for myself and that I love myself enough to decide what's best for me or knowing that God is going to do the best by me. And thus I love myself by sac. It's, it's a paradox. You know, I, it is. I, I think back to, you know, Matthew 16, you know, he who wants to come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me, crucify yourself, you know, right. the self must die. And it brings me back to, again, this idea, even among Christians, I think that, well, you know, obviously Christianity is right, but there's lots of worldviews that can lead to people being good. You know, you follow this worldview and it'll tell you, hey, be kind to other people. Why? Because that makes them happy. And it's good to be nice to other people. And the world's just better when everybody's happy. I, I think back to, I'll shout out one of Jack's books here, um, uh, That Hideous Strength. There's a character in that book called Mark Studdock. And Jack, he's not, a, that, not that I wrote that? the book, that I'm a oh. big fan of the book. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, no, Jack he didn't. Ryan? Yes. Mm-hmm. Jack uh, C.S. Lewis Wilkie. No. Um, yeah. No, he, a book he constantly talks about. And this character, Mark Studdock, in the book, he's going through the motions of kind of trying to get into this deeper um, intellectual society. And he eventually comes to this room they bring him in where they want to subvert his every understanding of objective reality. The room is just off. The dimensions are off. The colors are off. Everything about it. And it feels totally like they're trying to kind of decentralize him from reality. And the last thing that they do is they take a a wooden statue crucifix of Jesus on the cross and put it on the floor and they tell him, step on it. And he says, what does this have to do with anything? You know, all the things we've been talking about, religion's not come up in it, this decentralizing, why are you bringing this to me now? And the guy says, you don't understand yet, but you've got to do it. You've got to step on the cross. And what it comes down to is That's the last part. self-sacrifice only yeah. makes sense yeah. in the reality historically and right. theologically of <laughs> Jesus Christ being the man the human to come and give himself for us. And that's what each and every one of us is called to do. And and I don't care whether it's Judaism, whether it's Islam, whether it's Buddhism, no other worldview can make sense of the fact that we will be most happy when we die to ourselves. Right. Yeah. And you bring out a good point. Like being the desire to be happy is the most natural desire that exists in the world. There's nothing wrong. God designed us to be, to want to be happy. Because when we're not happy, something's broken and something's wrong and and we have the desire to fix it. So everybody has this, but where are we going to find it? Are we going to find it by creating a God in my image, which which may be easier, but is going to ultimately destroy me? Or am I going to find it through submission and through subjection and through obedience to the living God? That's where I'm going to find my greatest joy. And we find it to be this case. In self-sacrifice, again, I can only use myself as any, I mean, the Bible talks about it, but the root of any anxiety and depression that I had was just, I was inside myself. And I, I was listening to Chesterton the other day and he was talking about, um, I, I'm, lis- I'm listening to a book. So a lot of times I read my books through listening because it's faster. But um, he, he was talking about, he said, look, Eastern mysticism, Buddhism, and, and kind of these kinds of fades, he said, these are centripetal. They work inward. They, they like everything orbits in on the self. And that's what modern meditation is and all this. But Christianity is centrifugal. It rotates outward. It moves outward. And you put either one of these into practice, one of them fulfills. And that's like it, that inherently speaks to the truth of it. The Christian message is true. You find your life and self-sacrifice. 
Yeah. yeah. It's amazing um, to think, I think looking, looking as inwardly as you can, and you think about Jesus again, the flawless man, the man of infinite capability, the right. man of no guilt. And, and again, just the, the pounding of that hammer, the pegs into his feet, into his right. arms and looking and saying, that is, that's it. You know, that that, right. that, that's it. It's just, that's again, exactly it, right. it, we, I think it's so subversive. And even for people that have sat in church for 50 years, when you revisit it and you revisit your own selfishness and you stand at the foot of that cross, yes. you still just look and go, wow, there's something here that transcends he, everything. He didn't die. So you hear all the time, he died so you don't have to. And the truth is he died to show you how you have to die. Mm-hmm. He came and showed us the like the path directly to eternity. Yeah. Die to yourself. So crucify uh, yourself. I mean, you got Romans twelve. You got Philippians two. They, they both just emphasize this. Consider others more important than yourself. Those two verses alone make Christianity diametrically incompatible with yeah. with modern individualism. And yep. when we understand, and, and Christians have to understand this, that everything in society, as, as Titus was saying earlier, drives you towards individualism. Whether you realize it or not, that you're, it's kind of the, the fish, does the fish know he's wet? Do you understand how individualistic you've been trained to be? And then realize, okay, this is a thing I have, whether I realize it or not, and so I've got to be very aware of that. And the Bible tells me to do the opposite. And my yeah. my favorite verses in the entire Bible is Philippians two five through eight, where he just starts out, "Have this same mind in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus." And exactly the things you guys are talking about. He emptied himself. He became a bondservant. He took on flesh. He went to the cross. Uh, everything that he did for us. And Paul said, "You need to think that same way." What you just said, Daniel. He died. You got to do the same thing. And again, how you can do that and approach your your life as a husband, as a father, as a mother, as a, a as a wife, as a church member, as a as a human, as an employee, as a, a friend, as a, 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 a what am I trying to say? As a as a child, uh, you know, of your parents, whatever it is, yeah, your your deepest instinct is to be an individualist your deepest instinct is to think what do i want and that's Mm -hmm. exactly what he tells you explicitly multiple times in the new testament stop asking that start thinking about other people as more important than yourself well and one one quick symptom and i think the solution that we're starting to see and then i want to answer a little more particularly what you said about you know what what really are we one one of the things we're starting to see we're already seeing the fruit of the transgender movement which we're we're capitalizing on this because this is really the like this is like where it's led to. This is this is the top of the Mount Everest of the self movement. Is that you can be something essentially than what you are in your um, like actual biology, and we're seeing those who've gone all the way to the other end, and they're saying that wasn't the answer. Like I I didn't my and and they're converting to Christianity. These transgenders are converting to Christianity and saying, oh. I guess, you know, I was born a woman. I guess I really am going to be happy just being the woman God made me to be and being in submission to him. And like, you're seeing these stories there. They have real joy. They're not using drugs. They're not going to therapists anymore. They're Christians and they're obeying the living God. And it's like, there's life. That's where it is. And and this goes all the way back. The Bible has all the answers. You go to Genesis chapter one. He says, God made them male and female, that means it goes to their core. This is not just your body parts. This is not just your sex organs. You're male and female, and individually, you are the image of God. That is what you are. You are created by God, either male or female, bearing his image. And your purpose, Isaiah 43, 7, is to glorify God. That's what it is. No. End of Ecclesiastes, what is the whole duty of man? I mean... Solomon lived a very self-fulfilled life. He got the end of it and he said, look, here's the bottom line. Here's what I've learned. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. I love and, you can, and I, Go ahead. Well, no, I just want to say one, one quick thing. We are going to be dogmatic about that. Um, I heard, I put the quote online yesterday, but again, I was listening to Chesterton and he said, look, t- today I, we... We saw a quote the other day that said dogma is just, you know, it's just your own preconceived ideas without observation or whatever. It's like, no, that's a lie. That's not what dogma is. Proper dogma is not the absence of thought, but it's the end of thought. 
it's you've gone all the way down the line and this is where you're you're going to stand and you're going to set up camp and we believe that that's that we're going to be dogmatic about the law of the living god that's in this universe that's who, what that's what this podcast is about we stand on it we stand by it because this is what it means to be human and this is where we find life purpose value joy peace all that go ahead jack i was just going to say on the ecclesiastes part it's so wonderful. I love the book where you can read it almost forwards and backwards, where you read it forwards of vanity, vanity, it's all a waste, it's all a waste, and you get to the end, the whole purpose of man is this. And when you have that in place, fear God yeah. and keep his commandments, all the other stuff finds meaning and fulfillment. It, like, it becomes useful yeah. of enjoying a yeah. good time and friendship and food and work and, and learning and all that. That Amen. if you, as as you said earlier, when you've got your love of God right, then everything else about self flows in the right direction to where you can enjoy that. And so, it's not about this ascetic monk-like self denial of man. All I'm going to eat is gruel and sleep on a cold hard floor <laughs> the rest of my. It's not that at all. It's there's a beautiful life for you if you don't focus on yourself first. Right. Yeah, if you focus absolutely. on yourself first, you'll be miserable. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, and what we've just, what you guys have just said. The, the Ecclesiastes call all of that. It reminds me of what Jesus said to Peter. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. No part of your natural self without the revelation of God is going to come to this understanding. Like we must go to the Bible. We have to go to the teaching to truly figure out who we are because this body, our desires, our lust, it's never going to naturally point us in that direction. It's never going to truly show us who we are. It's only in the picture that God paints that we really find ourselves, And that's why the gospel is so powerful because you have people that have lived 40 years, 50 years, 60 years. They've been through jobs. They've been through families. They've been through these different things. And there's something that the Bible and the gospel offers them that none of those other things have shown them. It's yeah. only there. And that, like you said, the end of thought, we're done thinking. I'm done yeah. searching. It's here in the bedrock truth that I find, oh, this is what it was all about the whole time. This is who I am. And as we said, as Jack says, once everything falls into place, it, it's not shackles on your arms or, or a chain around your neck. It's liberating. It's liberating to understand who you really are. I was just thinking we could really do a whole other episode about the way this works out practically in the church, because we've all said what we've just said. I don't think we can say it any better about who we are, what we're designed to be, what God tells us we need. The real, where the rubber meets the road here is where these individualistic practices work out in the church. Just to throw out like a super quick one that came to my mind. Uh, the latter half of 1 Corinthians 11, we've turned into a passage that's either about uh, don't take the Lord's Supper in the context of a meal or uh, don't don't have a house church or there's this weird, weird uh, expositions of that that I've heard. When you have a whole passage there that's talking about, hey, when you come together to partake of the Lord's Supper, this this foundational stone, you've got to be thinking about not just yourself. You got to be thinking about each other. And again, with us, where the where the where the Lord's Supper is so much a from my brain, my deep meditative brain to, to the throne room of God. And this kind of this very, again, uh, Jack, I think in church reset uses the idea of team-based sport versus like individual sport. Yeah. It's almost like we're a room full of Christians in worship service that are playing golf, us and God, and we're doing it in a, in a crowd versus like the very bedrock foundation of this is that as we approach God, we do it as a body. We right. do it as a, a body of believers. I can't boldly approach the throne of grace as an individual because I have have to have Jesus to come with me. And it yeah. just so happens that Jesus has a bunch of other people right beside him as well. Right. And so That's all exactly of these right. things. Yeah. Yeah. I heard Dan Owen one time. He's saying, look, one of the things that I do during the Lord's Supper is he said, I open my eyes and I look around the room. Yeah. Because I'm like, oh, yeah, that guy over there who's brand new Christian, super immature. He's sitting at the Lord's table. Yeah. That person over there who's an elder who's been in the church for 60 years. He's sitting at the Lord's table. Every one of us is gathered around the throne of the living God, sharing a meal with 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 God, with Christ, only because of the blood of Christ that has purchased us. And so we have to consider the body. <laughs> consider right. right, consider. Yeah, body. you better. That's exactly right. And I and I and I think that's huge, especially when we think about like you you the individualistic like narrative. We can hold to some of the self sacrifice stuff and still hold on to individualism. When we come to the church, because you've got some who think they don't need to be a part of a church. I can, you know, I can just do church at home. I can do, I can stream it online. I can be, it's like, no, you can't because 
you're not giving you might gain some stuff online but you're not giving anything and you're certainly not a part of anything and what it means to be a part of the body of Christ is you're a you're a member of that body my pinky doesn't do any value when it's cut off and you know across the building like it does it does absolutely nothing it's functionless it's it doesn't have any lifeblood it can't do anything we find our purpose in the connection of this community of of Jesus Christ, which is his church. And we're no longer just individuals. We're individual members, one of another. Jesus is our head. We find our purpose. We find our life. We find everything there. Absolutely. I'm always the guy on on this podcast shouting out Think Deeper on Think Deeper, shouting out this podcast. Uh, The one we recorded this morning right ahead of this, we called Choose Your Own Adventure Christianity. And it was about that of... Everybody comes to church as an individual, and as involved as I want to be, that's what I'm going to do. Now, it doesn't work that way. And so uh, check that one out as well. That's already out when you're hearing this. Um, but, I mean, this this could be this could be a season, honestly, on individualism yeah. and its manifestation. So we might have to revisit uh, this one at some point. As always, uh, like, subscribe, share, whatever. Help us get the word out. Uh, we really appreciate We always get good feedback. And... Uh, we just we really enjoy these conversations and we're glad to hear other people do as well and we'll be back next week on who let the dogma out